The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And once again, all God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship our triune God. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. This is from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has than more honor than the house itself. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, in this Easter season, we continue to remember your great care for your people. You have never abandoned us. You have raised up deliverers like Moses and the greater Moses, Jesus. We remember Moses instituted the Passover lamb to redeem Israel, and Jesus became that Passover lamb to redeem Israel. Moses handed down the law of God. Jesus took it, obeyed it, and fulfilled the law. Moses led your people all the way to the edge of the promised land before his death, but by his death, Jesus has entered in to the final promised land and leads your people, even now, into perfect rest. Jesus truly is the greater Moses. And so it is in the name of Jesus that we worship you now, our glorious God. And amen. Easter must have been terrifying. We often think of the joy of Easter, and yes, joy does come. But when Jesus first appeared to his disciples, barricaded in that back room, they were terrified. And this is partly because uh, they thought Jesus was a ghost, and I think partly because they thought that Jesus had finally caught up with them, and they knew that they were guilty. Remember the last time that they were all together, the disciples were running away from Jesus as fast as they could go. In some ways, the surprise appearance of Jesus to his disciples is like the surprise appearance of Joseph to his brothers. Remember, the last time that the brothers saw Joseph, he was getting led off in chains to Egypt, and for all they knew, to his death. And now, standing right before them is Joseph, the brother that they gave up for dead. And his appearance, his resurrection, exposed their betrayal, their abandonment, their guilt that they have tried to hide. Again, it's like Joseph is not just alive, but now he is the ruler of the land, and he has power over their life and over their death. And you can just imagine that their hearts, their knees are about to give out. They have been caught. Now, when Jesus stands among his disciples, they must have had similar feelings of terror. And guess what? Jesus is not going to smite them. Jesus is going to forgive them. Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. That's what Joseph said to his brothers, and this is what Jesus says to his disciples. The resurrection of Jesus exposed their sin, all their pompous boasting, their cowardice, their betrayal. And the resurrection of Jesus brought about the forgiveness for all of their sins. And you just think about what a relief that Sunday morning must have been for these men. Terror melts to peace and happy tears and feasting together and sweet forgiveness as Christians, as guilty disciples, we live in this reality. Jesus is alive, and he stands in the midst of your life. Jesus exposes your betrayal, your cowardice, your envy, your discontentment, your flaking on your responsibilities, your disrespect to your mom. And it doesn't matter that you've tried to lock the door or forget what you did way back in the past. Jesus is alive, and he is the Lord over all, and he has the power of forgiveness. And if you believe in him, he says, 
peace be with you. Do not be afraid. What sweet forgiveness. So as Christians, as moms, as dads, as brothers, as students, as disciples, go out and celebrate that Easter removes your terror because Jesus is alive, you are forgiven, and the doors are now wide open. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Father, we thank you first for your son Jesus, who is our high priest. He has come near to us in our weakness, in our fear, in our pain, in our temptation. And in the ultimate act, our high priest offered himself that our sin might be forgiven and that we might have peace with you, a holy God. We know his sacrifice. We know this gospel. And yet, we still treat lightly Christ's blood for our sin. We despise his gift by our hard-hearted pride. And what's more, instead of being like Jesus, who forgives and establishes peace, we terrorize and refuse to forgive. We would rather keep someone in a back room bound by guilt than release them and welcome them back into sweet restoration. In this, we imitate not our Savior who forgives, but Satan who accuses, condemns, keeps a record of wrongs. Father, we ask that you would give us the faith to believe that Jesus is risen and that he is our compassionate high priest. And so we confess our individual sins to you now and Selah. We ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. And amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of your Father's forgiveness. From Proverbs 1:33, Whoever listens to me will dwell securely and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Because Jesus rose from the dead, that means that everything will eventually also rise. And that means that all the sins, all the lies, all the lusts that you have tried to bury and forget are all going to get raised up and uncovered. And if people knew what you've done, you'd live in terror, right? You'd feel so awful. But the good news is that when you unbury your nasty sin and bring it to Jesus, you don't need to be afraid anymore. Jesus knows and he forgives and gives you his peace. And so, Christian, here is the sweet gospel, that your sins are forgiven through Christ. And thanks be to God. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into Hades. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our abbreviated response is from Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the zeal of your house has eat, eaten me up. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. They gave me also gall for my meat. Pour out thine indignation upon them. For God will save Zion. The seed also of his servants shall inherit it. Amen. 
And please continue to stand as we sing, Behold the Glories of the Lamb, page 296, 297. Amen. Our text this morning is 2 Kings chapter 11. These are the words of God. And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain. And they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. And he was with her, hid in the house of the Lord six years, and Athaliah did reign over the land. And the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and fetched the rulers over hundreds with the captains and the guards, and brought them to him into the house of the Lord, and made a covenant with them, and took an oath of them in the house of the Lord, and showed them the king's son. And he commanded them, saying, This is the thing that you shall do. A third part of you that enters in on the Sabbath shall even be keepers of the watch of the king's house. And a third part shall be at the gate of Sur, and a third part at the gate behind the guard. So shall you keep the watch of the house, that it be not broken down. And two parts of all you that go forth on the Sabbath, even they shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord about the king. And you shall compass the king round about, every man with his weapons in his hand. And he that cometh within the ranges, let him be slain. And be ye with the king as he goeth out and as he cometh in. And the captains over the hundreds did according to all things that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they took every man his men that were to come in on the Sabbath, with them that should go out on the Sabbath, and came to Jehoiada the priest. And to the captains over hundreds did the priest give King David spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. And the guards stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, round about the king, from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple, along by the altar and the temple. And he brought forth the king's son, and put the crown upon him, and gave him the testimony, and they made him king, and anointed him, and they clapped their hands, and said, God save the king. And when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she came to the people into the temple of the Lord. And when she looked, behold, the king stood by a pillar, as the manner was, and the princes and the trumpeters by the king. And all the people of the land rejoiced and blew with trumpets. And Athaliah rent her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! But Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the hosts, and said unto them, Have her forth without the ranges, and him that followeth her kill with the sword. For the priest had said, Let her not be slain in the house of the Lord. And they laid hands on her, and went, and she went by the way, by the which the horses came into the king's house, and there was she slain. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, between the king also and the people. And all the people of the land went into the house of Baal, and break it down on his altars and his images, break they in pieces thoroughly, and slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. And he took the rulers over hundreds and the captains and the guard and all the people of the land. And they brought down the king from the house of the Lord and came by the way of the gate of the guard to the king's house. And he sat on the throne of the kings. And all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was in quiet. And they slew Athaliah with the sword beside the king's house. Seven years old was Jehoash when he began to reign. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that is yours. We pray you would instruct us by it, grow us up by it, teach us by it, that we may become more like your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul commanded the Corinthians to, at the end of his letter to them, his first letter to them, he commanded, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, Quit you like men, be strong. The Greek word there is a wonderful one. It's andrizomai. It means be a man. God commands the bride of Christ to man up. Put your big boy pants on. Be watchful. Stand fast. Quit you like men. Be a man. The Christian life is a calling to be watchful, to be vigilant, to be courageous and strong, not limp-wristed, not cowardly, not weakly. 
This is just one way of saying that the Christian life isn't for pansies or pushovers. Uh, even, in, even in the love song uh, of Solomon, the groom describes his bride in military language. You are fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. Imagine Aaron Ventura looking at his f- new fiance. <laughs> Ellen, you are terrible as an army with banners. And she says, be still my beating heart. <laughs> All you single guys are getting like great pickup lines from this. The bride of Christ is called to man up, to be vigilant, to fight, to be watchful. Christ calls his church to be valiant, to fight against sin, to fight for their faith, and to do so manfully, to do so with courage, to do so with a spine, to do so not with limp wrists and weak knees, but with courage and confidence and calm. Our text this morning is a, is a remarkable illustration of that, a remarkable example of when a, when a godly man is courageous, when a godly man is watchful, when a godly man fights for what is right and good and pure. Let me set this up. Uh, if, if, you, if you notice at the beginning of this chapter on 11, and, and sometimes when you get to these Old Testament passages, you're like, I am having a hard time keeping track of the X's and O's, who's who, where's what, who's this, where are they, how are they related to this person, sort of like uh, Moscow family trees. They're related to them? Just found this out. So let me help you with that as far as what's going on here in this text. King Jehoram of Judah killed all of his brothers. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 21.4. And he was married to one of the main characters in our story, wicked queen Athaliah. So he had married the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And all of Jehoram's sons were killed in a raid by the Arabians, except Ahaziah, the youngest. So uh, Jehoram had killed all of his brothers, and then his, all of his sons get wiped out, except for one, by the Arabians. Now, this is in the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, so let's zoom up to the northern kingdom. Elijah had promised, had prophesied of the downfall of Ahab's kingdom and of his line back in 1 Kings 21. Uh, And I'd encourage you to go and listen. Uh, Pastor Toby gave a sermon on that text uh, back in January called Under the Mercy. It was a fantastic look at that chapter. I'd encourage you to go and listen to that. But Elijah prophesies and says, Ahab, you're done for. Your line has ended. Your dynasty is done. And Ahab repents. And Elijah says, okay, this isn't going to happen in your generation. It's going to happen down the line. So several years later, Elisha comes and anoints Jehu as king of Israel. And then he tasks Jehu with wiping out Ahab's line in accordance with Elijah's prophecy. So Jehu goes on his romp through Israel. He's uh, mowing people down. He's hunting down all of Ahab's line. And it just so happens that while Jehu is hunting down King Joram, who's king in Israel, who's Ahab's son and is the current king of Israel, Ahaziah, the king of Judah, you tracking with me here, is chumming around with King Joram up in Israel. He's chumming around with Joram, his brother-in-law. And so Jehu says, you're with him, you're done for. And he assassinates both of them. That's the 2 Kings 9, 23 through 27. So the death of her son signals for Athaliah, my time has come. This is my moment. But what's interesting is that her reign is introduced in the, as you read through First and 2 Kings, her reign is introduced in, in the most odd of ways, in such a way as to make the reader stop and feel like everything is all out of whack. It doesn't follow the typical, the father dies, uh, this many years he reigned, his son reigned in his place, his son was this many years old, he reigned for this many years, and either he was a stinker or a, or a good guy. It doesn't follow that. It, it, she shows up on the scene, and we're to take from that, whoa, this is all out of whack, all out of place. 
it doesn't follow the expected pattern for the introduction of a new ruler for Israel or Judah. So her son's death, he's wiped out by Jehu, along with the annihilation of her father's dynasty and the execution of all her extended family, she then asserts herself as ruler of Judah, likely an attempt to preserve her father's line and, and legacy. She's the last of Ahab's line, and she sits on the throne of David. She has no business there. She's not related to King David. She's not of his line, but there she sits. Uh, her power grab begins, like any good grandma would, by killing all her grandkids. She destroys all the royal seed, and I want you to hang on to that. That should, that should cue some, if you're, if you're a Bible reader, that should bring some thoughts to mind as far as promised seeds. She destroys all the royal seed. David's line is in grave danger and would have been destroyed had not Jehoshaphat, the wife of Jehoiada the high priest, had she not stolen the youngest son of Ahaziah. His name was Joash, this little one-year-old boy. And she raised him in the temple for six years. When Joash was seven, Jehoiada takes that as his cue to hatch a plan to restore the rightful king to David's throne. So he conscripts a band of trustworthy leaders. He brings them in, gathers them. He's forming this conspiracy. And he says, all right, guys, I've got a plan to restore order to David's kingdom. I've got a plan to restore the rightful king to David's throne. And you must think about these, these commanders, these guards, these Levites coming and going, Jehoiada's finally lost it. He's off his rocker. They were all wiped out. He says, you've got to swear to me that you're in, that you're going to follow my lead, that you're going to trust me. And they swear, and I love this moment in the text, he shows them the king. Can you imagine them? Is that? Are you, can you, that, that, it's the king, the rightful king, the promised king, the line of David has been preserved, and you can imagine for these faithful men, the joy that would come by seeing that David's line had not been abandoned, had not been destroyed. He swears them to secrecy, and then he shows them the king's son. So his plan is to protect the king, to protect young King Joash, while overthrowing the usurping Athalia, and it involved basically forming a barricade of bodyguards to surround the temple on a Sabbath day. So they pick a Sabbath day where, hey, everybody's going to be there. There's going to be a crowd. It's not going to be so noticeable that we've got this, this garrison surrounding the temple and that we're about to have a, a, a coronation ceremony in the temple. This scheme is put into action. David's weaponry is brought out of the treasury Jehoiada then crowns Joash, gives him a copy of the covenant. He anoints him, and they all made a noticeable ruckus. They clap their hands, they're blowing their trumpets, they're shouting their praises. So much so that wicked Queen Athalia, off in her temple, or off in her palace, she hears shouts, goes, what's that din, what's that noise? What is, what is that going on? What's happening? She's listening. God save the king. God save the king. God, the king. She hears the cries of God save the king. That must have taken her off guard. And so she rushes to the scene. Unfortunately for her, without any bodyguards. <laughs> uh, free, a comment free of charge. If you're a queen and you hear shouts of God save the king, maybe bring some bodyguards with you to check out what's happening. <laughs> she comes in. She's going, what's the meaning of all this? I mean, just think of your Cruella de Vil, your wicked witch of the West. Just think of your wickedest uh, character. She charges in with her shrill voice and, what's going on here? What are you talking about, God save the king? And she rushes in, and when she looked, verse 14, when she looked, behold, the king stood by the pillar. 
Hey, Grandma. <laughs> Crown on his head, covenant in his hand, oil running down his head, a freshly crowned king, a son of David, crowned king once more in Judah. And so she does what any reasonable grandma does, rips her clothes and cries, treason! Jehoiada commands, let her be executed. Take her out, outside the temple, and if anybody tries to come and help her, tries to rescue her, rescue her defend her, take them out too. Execute them. And his orders are followed in verses 15 and 16. And then we turn to a covenant renewal ceremony that takes place between the Lord and the king, and the king and his people, followed by a purge of all the Baal paraphernalia. There in verses 17 and 18. And then a, a parade through town as Joash is brought and seated on David's throne. And the people rejoice and they enjoy quiet. And then the narrative returns to the expected way of introducing a new ruler. Seven years old was Jehoash when he began to reign. So we begin with... It's seeming like the covenant to David is on the rocks. And we end with a return to order, a return to peace. Psalm 132, verse 11, promises this to David. It says, The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. This is a promise to David that he would always have an heir sitting upon his throne. Um, so when you read through this soap opera, you might go, boy, my family's actually pretty good. <laughs> I've got it pretty good. But when you read through this soap opera, you might think, so the Lord sworn to David that he'll always have a, a son sitting on the throne. I sure hope God kept the receipts for that promise. I sure hope God has... Uh, an insurance policy on this promise of his because it doesn't look like it's going to come through. Athalia goes about, went about to destroy the seed which God had promised would forever sit upon the throne of David. And not only that, but that should hearken, we should hearken back to and think back to the threat that this poses to the even more ancient promise given to Eve, that's zoomed in now to David's line, that the promise to Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent had come down to represent, be represented by David and his line. And so not only the promise to David, but the more ancient promise of the Messiah coming to kill the dragon was on the rocks. It looked like it wasn't going to come together. It looked like the promise had failed for six years. And here was a little baby about to be slaughtered, upon whom hung Israel's only hope for the promised Messiah. And so what's a faithful Israelite to do, a faithful Jew to do? Throw the hands up, say, well, I guess, guess we'll need to find a new God. I guess God's promises failed. Oftentimes, God's promises feel like they are hanging by a thread. Part of that's because God likes nail biters. God likes cliffhangers. We think of the promise that he's given to forgive our sins and cleanse our conscience. But then we still feel the grime of guilt and shame. And we wonder, God's promise, is it still good? He promised to clear my conscience, forgive me. I, I feel the grime of my guilt and shame. Is that promise good? He's promised to lead us in triumph over our sins, 2 Corinthians 2, 14. But then we stumble again to that same temptation that we said, I'm not going to fault that again. I'm not going to give way to that again. Has God's promise failed? He's promised to give us a spirit of power, but we remain timid and fearful, worried. We say, God, you promised a spirit of power, but all I know is biting my nails. All I know is I'm terrified of the future. I'm terrified of my circumstances. I'm terrified of the next bill that's going to come in the mail. I'm terrified of the news I'm going to receive from the doctor. 
God, you promise a spirit of power. He has promised to deliver us from our enemies, Psalm 18.3. And then we turn in anxiety, lust, arrogance, laziness, seem to hound us at every turn. And we think, God, is your promise good? See, God promised David that his seed would sit on the throne forever. And so when Athaliah comes to power, that promise really does seem like a long shot. But it's precisely at that moment when faith seems most improbable and inadequate that God delights to introduce a new character to the story. And as, a, and as an aside here, we like to think that faith uh, is, is the sort of thing that we can just sort of put in a box, stick on the shelf of our heart and be like, good, I'm, I'm set, I've got faith, I'm, I'm good to go. And God delights to test our faith, to grow our faith. It's, it's like the, uh, the fellow who uh, wants, to, wants to bulk up and get stronger and he goes into the gym and he just looks at the exercise equipment and goes, I feel myself getting stronger by the moment. Gets down, maybe does one rep, like, whew, that was a break of sweat. But see, for strength to be strengthened, it needs resistance. It needs weight. It needs opposition. It needs another 10 pounds added. If you want your faith to grow, you need to expect your faith to be tested, to seem to hang by a thread. And it's in the moment when it feels like God's promise is hanging by a thread that God delights to introduce a new character to the story. Out of nowhere comes this woman, Yehosheba. And, and it's, it's wonderful when you look at the meanings of, of names and stories like this, you're like, Bunyan was not, this, if, if Bunyan had been tasked with naming these characters, he couldn't have done any better. You know what Jehosheba means? The royal seed's about to be wiped out. The promise to David is about to fail. And in steps a character whose name means the Lord has sworn. In steps a character who says, remember God's promise. In steps a character who says, God will not fail. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Will not turn back. You see, faith does not concern itself with the circumstances that are surrounding it. It concerns itself with the Lord who has promised, the Lord of the covenant, the Lord who has joined himself to his people and said, I will deliver, I will protect, I will preserve that which I have promised to you. Faith does not look at the bleakness of the situation and conclude, well, does anyone have directions to the nearest Baal temple? It says, my God has promised and cannot lie. I will cling to that promise and act upon that promise and live according to that promise. And notice that the faith of Jehoshaphat and her husband, the high priest Jehoiada, is not passive. It doesn't sit and twiddle its thumbs. They go and she goes and she steals it's the same word used in the, ten, the Eighth Commandment to thou shalt not steal. Well, she goes and she steals the promised king, the rightful king. And then as we see, six years later, Jehoiada hatches, hatches this plot to overthrow Athaliah's regime and put the rightful king on the throne. Their faith was not cowardly. Their faith was not Sit, sitting on its hands. Their faith was not idle and apathetic. There's a phrase here in here that I, I've always loved, and uh, it's the phrase, uh, there's this contrast here of within the ranges and without the ranges, within, within the ranks and without the ranks, sort of within the temple and outside the temple. There's this wonderful uh, uh, play going on here as to what belongs in the temple and what belongs outside of the temple. What belongs in the range and out of the range. So I want to ask, what is your range? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Christ's spirit 
dwells within you. Romans 8, 11. But we all have experienced and know that sin wants to claim the throne that belongs to Christ. Temptation isn't content with Jesus remaining on the throne of your life. Temptation wants to usurp the rightful king of your life. It wants to kill the rightful king. And, and this can take place on an individual level and on a corporate level, on a societal level. It happens in communities as well. In other words, uh, it's just another way of saying that growth and holiness, fighting against sin, is a group project where everyone's graded inv individually. You have been given a, a temple. You've been given a jurisdiction, a range, a, a, a realm of influence, as it were, in which you are to preserve that which God has entrusted and you are to fight against any wolves that would try to enter in and devour. What does Jehoiada do? He says, if anyone comes within the ranges to try to kill Joash, let him be killed. Anyone who breaks this boundary, anyone who infiltrates, is a traitor to the rightful king and must be slain. So husbands, are there intruders in your marriage? Parents, have you uh, allowed your children to wander off and wander away and, and, and be enticed out of, out of the range of your jurisdiction and they're being led astray? Businessmen, business owners... Are the sort of practices happening in your business above reproach, on the up and up? Pastors, presidents, mayors, city council members, students. You realize that you're called to form a barricade around that which you are called to protect and preserve. While at the same time staunchly opposing the entrance of evil, any that would threaten to kill the king. If there is sin in your marriage, in your family, in your business, or in our country, the faithful response, the, the saint's response, is that you must scheme to apprehend it at the first opportunity and take it without the ranges, outside the temple, outside, and slit its throat. You must not allow sin within the ranges. The rebel queen must be dethroned and the rightful king must be enthroned. Joash was a son of David. And in this story we see that where the threat to the, the royal line uh, seems imminent, seems like Joash is about to be wiped out. We shouldn't miss, miss the, the fact that what ends up on the throne is a son of David. And, and what, did, what was King David like? What sort of man was King David over the flock that he'd been entrusted? Uh, when, when Goliath is, is there um, taunting Israel and King David comes into camp and he sees everybody shaking in their tents, he goes, you guys, come on, get your act together. I'm like 14 or 16 or whatever he was. Come on. And he goes to Saul and says, let me fight him. Let me at him. And Saul says, well, uh, are you sure, little boy? Pats him on the head kind of thing. What qualifies you, David, to fight this giant, to fight this man, that's this, this giant that's taunting Israel, that's an equipped uh, warrior, and you're just a little boy? And, and David says, if you read in 1 Samuel 17, he says, well, when I was a, when I was a shepherd, uh, lions would sometimes come and they'd steal sheep. And what I would do is scream like a little girl and run and cry for mama. <laughs> That's not what David says. He says, well, what I would do, as any reasonable teenager would do, saw the lion, got my sheep. I said, hey, that's my dad's sheep. Come back here. And the lion didn't stop. And so he chases after it. And this happened with a bear as well. And so David chases after a lion and it says it grabs him by the beard. He grabs the lion by the beard or the bear by the beard, breaks its jaws, says, thank you very much. I'll take my sheep back. 
And that's how David said, I'm qualified to fight Goliath. This giant is boasting against the Lord, is taunting the flock of the Lord. And David's been anointed king, and he knows this flock of Israel is the one God's given me. Here's a lion, a lion of a man. Let me go break his jaw. Christ chased down the serpent, chased down the dragon, ripped you from its deadly jaws, and restored you to his flock. A son of David broke the jaws of a dragon to deliver you, to restore you to the flock, to bring peace to your kingdom, as it were. And you are to be like David's son. You are to do the same for the flock that you've been given, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your family, whether it's your business, your church, your city, your country. You are called to see when things aren't right and plot and scheme and work and labor in faith until Athalia's kingdom is overthrown. You must be like Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada and risk everything to preserve the life of the king within the temple. And you must not get queasy when that demands, when that calls for the execution of the unlawful tyrant of sin. So we started at the beginning, Andrizomai, be a man, quit you like men, and take Athalia down. Ruthlessly hunt down any sin which vaunts itself against the true king, while trusting in God's sovereign hand of providence to hover over it all. Uh, Just draw your attention. Notice that while Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada, this this wonderful uh, godly couple, while they clearly act courageously and, and faithfully, I think we're led to be reminded of God's covenant promise and see how God's hand is really the hand that's, that's orchestrating these events. That they're being faithful with the task, with the range, with the flock that they've been given. But all the while, God is the one that's fighting for them, that's, that's, that's doing the, the, uh, the plot twist. And see God's hand as being the primary actor in these events. You see, you are to grow in godliness. You are to preserve that which has been entrusted to you and to protect it. You're to grow in godliness in much the same way. You must not be passive, not sit on your hands, but remember that with all your activity to dethrone sin and exalt Christ, all of it is ultimately governed by God's gracious, omnipotent, righteous right hand. This story begins with a covenant that seems to be on the brink of being broken, a promise that looks like it will fail. But it ends, you'll notice, with a covenant renewal ceremony, a reminder that God has promised to care for his people, protect his people, provide for his people, and preserve them. It ends with that covenant being remembered, renewed. You see, your faith is often going to be assaulted. In fact, probably later today, you're going to be tested, whether by temptation or circumstance, whether by failure in sin, your faith will be tested. It will often be assaulted. But notice that true faith is always vindicated. The end of the story, what do you see? You see a covenant king receiving the praise and joy of his covenant people seated on the rightful throne. And so when Athalia makes a claim, makes a play at your life, makes a claim to what is rightfully Christ's within you or within your range or within your family or your realm of influence, within your temple, as it were, do not rest, do not cease, do not delay to lay hold of God's covenant promises. To remember that the Lord has sworn, the Lord has promised, and God cannot lie. And then, watch with bated breath as God brings about the unexpected deliverance, as God brings about the plot twist, as God dethrones Athalia and enthrones the rightful king. 
Of this we can be confident that the serpent's seed will be crushed by the seed of the woman. A faithful Jew in this moment would see that the, the royal seed is being destroyed and go, God has something in store. God will not forsake us. God will not abandon us. Reminds me of that wonderful old hymn. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with you. O be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. E'en down to old age all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that your promise to your people are yes and amen. Uh, that we can lean wholeheartedly upon your, your grace and your promise and your faithfulness. That the Lord has sworn, you have covenanted with us, you have promised to preserve us and uphold us and sustain us, though our path may lie through the very fires of hell. Lord, I pray that you would encourage your saints this morning to fight the battles that have been laid before them. To overthrow the, the usurping kings or queens that have taken up residence in their hearts. And Lord, we pray that the rightful king, our King Jesus, would be exalted in each of our lives and families and ultimately our nation. That from sea to sea, from shore to shore, our Lord and Savior Jesus might be praised and adored by every nation, tribe, and tongue. Amen. A short history lesson. When Lewis and Clark were commissioned to explore the Louisiana Purchase, their primary purpose was to map the territory. However, one of their other assignments was to announce to the various tribes that they had a new chief named Thomas Jefferson. We see in Lewis and Clark's task a parable of the Christian calling. Christ purchased the world by his death, resurrection, and ascension. Every person, tribe, and nation of this earth is to be informed that what they used to view as their territory, their range, their kingdom, their nation, is now under new management. The Christian's task is to go into all the world to proclaim that there is now a new king over all, and every other chief, king, President, mayor, father, parent is now subservient to this king. Jesus is the crowned king of the earth. And this meal we eat proclaims Christ's death until he comes. So when you eat this meal, you are proclaiming that your life is no longer your own. Jesus is king of your heart. But this also has import for every social order of mankind. When we eat this, we proclaim that Christ is king of your family. He is king of Idaho. He is king of North America. He is king of communist China, squalid Haiti, and affluent Luxembourg. He's king of it all. His death proclaimed by this meal was the purchase price for this world. The nations of this world must now reckon with the irrefutable fact that as tenants of Christ's world, they must either submit to his reign of peace, joy, and blessing, or else face the hot displeasure of his wrath for refusing to acknowledge his rightful reign over them. 
the range of his kingdom is from shore to shore. And every nation, tribe, and tongue must one day confess, and every knee must bow and acknowledge that he indeed is the rightful king. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful that by this meal your son's death is proclaimed. And in that death you declare that all the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. So we now eat with the joy of covenant children of the King of Kings. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen to the words of uh, the, the account of the text we had this morning uh, that's found in Second Chronicles. At the end of Jehoiada's life, it says this about him. He waxed old and was full of days when he died, and 130 years old he was when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and toward his house. This high priest gets the privilege of being buried with the, the kings of David. It's striking to think, look what one godly man, look what one faithful man can accomplish, who is zealous for God's glory and 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 acts upon it faithfully within the range of his influence. Look what a godly man can do to preserve and promote godliness in an entire nation. And you have a family. You have a, your own life. You have your business. You have your school. You have a range. Are you protecting it? Are you preserving it? Are you trusting in God to fulfill his promises to you in those tasks? Jehoiada was reckoned as if he had been a king. So live to be like Jehoiada. Now hear the benediction of the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.